As a culture, we are people impatient of story. At least if the story goes very long. We prefer the anecdote, the soundbite, the slogan. We want digested truth. Bare facts, information, whether doctrinal or scientific, skip the mystery. But our impatience is a sign of our unwillingness to submit to the long processes of God's ways of working with us. It is also evidence of an unwillingness to share the extended and extensive workings of God with imperfect men and women who make up the company of redemption. We prefer depersonalized shortcuts. We want an interventionist God. We want an obvious God with no mystery. We want to know it all and to know it now with no loose ends. We want God quickly on our terms. Bypass the process of creation and redemption and get this over with. We want God vertically without the inconvenience of other people. Flawed, imperfect other people. Story, and the longer the better, forces us to inhabit the community of sinners and saints with no one exempt from the process. Story prevents us from assuming that we can get God coming down on a rope ladder and pulling us out of history. Storytelling, and especially biblical storytelling, trains us in patient submission to the processes of holy history. Those are the words of Professor Eugene Peterson as he attempts to describe the absolute importance for you and I to embrace the story. You see, God has not written an article. God has not written a short story. God has not written a blog post. God has not written a 140 character tweet. God has written a big, grand story of redemption. It goes from before the beginning of time and it stretches to the end, which there is no end, for all eternity. It is a big, glorious, beautiful story. And the, the story unfolds in such a way that we get to see the exquisite beauty and infinite greatness of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And within the King's story, I find my story. And you find your story. And we find our story together. Today's story in 2 Samuel is a long story. It is a complex story. But it's not about the king of kings, it's about another king. A king who preceded King Jesus, who paved the way for King Jesus. Today's message is a story about a king in his brokenness. A king in his brokenness. And God intends for us to experience His story with all its problems and pains and complexities for two main reasons. He wants us to understand that life Listen to me, church. Life is complex. It is complex. It is layered. It is painful. It's confusing. It's surprisingly good at times. But life is not simple. 
Life is not black and white. It is not cut and dry. It, 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 it is complex. It is difficult. It is hard. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is painful. And He wants us to see the greater King where we will find ultimate and eternal hope. That's why this story is here. These final events in the life of King David, they make sure that we get the whole story and not just the inspiring parts of David's life. Listen, we get David in his glory and in his shame. We get him in his repentance and in his, in his pain. That's how we get him. That's how God wants us to see him. And so, he wants us to see the king in his brokenness today so that we can look to the ultimate king, King Jesus, where we find ultimate and eternal hope. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the king go from being glorious and awesome to being painfully sinful and then repentant over his sin. If you can remember, in his sin, he had committed adultery and abused his power and been malicious and ultimately murdered. And Nathan the prophet comes and he says, You're the man. You're the man, David. You're guilty. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And this is what he says. If you can remember in chapter 12, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Those are the words of the Lord through Nathan the prophet to David who had sinned against him. By God's grace... David says, I have sinned. He repents. He goes down on his face before God. He confesses his sins. He asks for forgiveness. He writes it all out in Psalm 51. And we ultimately see the triumph of the king in that. But if we ask the question, church, what would David say as a result of all that he did and all that he experienced in 2 Samuel 11 and 12? David would say that if your heart beats for the glory of God, like my heart beat for the glory of God, that, that God, the great shepherd, will pursue you lovingly and passionately as much when you sin terribly as when you obey terrifically. He did it for me and He'll do it for you because He loves you. He is passionate for you. He has made a covenant with you and He's going to keep that covenant no matter how unfaithful you might be. That's what David would say to us. And so now, church, I want to ask you if you will turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Because David is about to experience significant problems. Significant problems. We're going to look at this story in David's life from chapters 13 through 20, and we're going to see ten problems in his life. And the very first problem that David experiences after his sins and even after his repentance is the problem of defilement. 
The problem of defilement. David has many children. We read about one daughter. This daughter, Tamar, is beautiful. She is single. She is pure. David has some type of claim on her and she wears special clothing because she is beautiful and she is pure and she certainly wants to be married one day, but she is not yet. And David's oldest son is named Amnon. And Amnon is lustful, passionate, and he looks at his half-sister Tamar day in and day out, and he says to himself, I want her. I need her. I must have her. Forget about the fact that I am her brother. I must have her. And it's not that he wants a relationship with her. It's not that he even necessarily wants to marry her. He has made his half-sister an object of his lust. She's not a person. She is an object. And so if you look down at verse 10 in chapter 13, Amnon has persuaded, he's acted like he is sick. He's acted like he is struggling and he asked for his sister's help and David, his dad, grants, oh yeah, I'll send Tamar, she'll cook you some food. And, and, uh, and so Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother, and she's thinking, I'm going to serve him, I'm loving him, I'm hoping this food will even make him feel better. But when she brought them near to to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, don't violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But Amnon would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. That is, he raped her. And then, Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And let's just make one observation. When the narrator uses the word love, he's not talking about biblical love. He's talking about lust. And Amnon said to her, Get up! Get out of here! But she said to him, No, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Don't, don't, don't take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. The problem of defilement, the problem of desecration, the problem of taking something which is pure and good and beautiful and making it impure and ugly and defiled, that is exactly what Amnon now has done to his sister Tamar. And this is the first byproduct of David's sin. Now, now church, we've got to ask the question when we're studying the Bible, what is it that we see and what is it curiously that we don't see in this passage? And once Amnar has raped his sister and thrown her out and she is desecrated and she is defiled and she is torn up and she is not only violated and abused, but now she, she doesn't know what to do and she doesn't know where to go. One of the things that we don't see is what David does. David gets angry. He's upset. But what does it say that he does? Nothing. David does nothing. What should a king do? What should a father do in this case? He should comfort his daughter. He should help his daughter. He should love his daughter. He should counsel his daughter. He should comfort his daughter. What should he do? He should exercise justice on his son. He should rebuke his son and correct his son and help his son and, and carry out the justice of the law to his son. But David gets angry and does what? Nothing. He does nothing. The problem of defilement is the first problem that David encounters. And so then we see the problem of revenge. Look down the next passage. Two full years go by. Absalom is stewing over the injustice of what has happened to his sister. He is stewing over the, the terrible nature of what his half-brother has done to his sister. And he is watching by his father doing nothing about it. And so he concocts this plan over a two-year period. 24 months go by. Sheep-shearing time is banquet time. Sheep-shearing time is festival time. It's celebration time after a year's hard work. And so he calls this banquet and he asks his father to come, but his father won't come. But he says, can all my brothers come and we're going to celebrate together. And in the meantime, he hires these servants to, to, to conspire to kill Amnon when Amnon shows up to the banquet. And so if you look down at verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with me. I'm sorry, merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. And in verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon uh, just as Absalom had commanded. This is the problem of revenge. Not only is the daughter defiled, now one of the sons takes out revenge on the other son because the king will not exercise justice. And so the, the problems are mounting. Defilement and then revenge. And so Amnon, 
the crown prince, the oldest son of David, is now murdered by one of his own sons. And that leads to the problem of heartache for David. It leads to the problem of heartache. If you'll read down at verse 34, Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. This is his grandparents. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So in this very opening chapter, we see the problem of defilement, the problem of revenge, and the problem of heartache. And King David has lost his beloved oldest son, and he's torn up about it. But now the Lord is comforting him, and he's helping him. But David does nothing to try to bring restoration to, his son, to he and his son Absalom. And he's also, if you, can, if you can tell, he's not doing anything to bring help to his daughter Tamar. As a matter of fact, church, we will read nothing from the life of Tamar again. She walks out desolate and we hear nothing else from her. So sad. So sad. The problems that come from sin. Problems that come from living in a broken world. So now we read about the problem of separation. So, Absalom is away. He's been over at his grandparents in another land for a few years. And, and Joab, kind of David's right-hand man, his commander, he doesn't think it's right. He's got a problem with it. And so he's trying to figure out a way to convince David to reconcile with Absalom, to bring Absalom back so that David can shepherd his own son's heart, so that David can help him and love him and restore him, and so that David's heart can be relieved a little bit. And so David goes, and I mean, uh, Joab goes and gets this, this wise woman, and she can spin a story, she can tell a story, and essentially this is the story that this woman tells King David. She says, I'm a widow, I have no husband. And I've got two sons. And my two sons were out in the field. And they fought with one another. And, and one son killed the other son. And it's tragic. So I've lost my husband, and now I've lost one of my sons, and I've only got one son left. And the people in my town, and even my own family members, my cousins and my aunts and uncles, are calling for, for his head. Because he murdered my son. But, but King, this is the thing. Is if is if I lose my son because if he's executed because of the murder of my other son, then that's going to leave me with no husband, no son, no ember, no coal. What am I going to do? And even my own husband's name cannot be honored generation after generation because all of the men in the family will be gone. What shall I do? And David, unknowing that she has a plan here, says, I'll take care of your son 
Don't let him be executed because this would be wrong. You need to be restored to him. You need to be his mother. He needs to be your son. We'll exercise grace here. And then she flips the script. And she says, can I speak honestly with you? And he said, yes. And she says, this is really what's going on with you and your life. Your son killed your other son. But instead of trying to restore him, instead of trying to help him and to shepherd him, you are now shunning him. You are now hating him. You, you might as well be executing him. Now, if you look down at the passage, in verse 21, the king says to Joab, because he realized Joab is behind it, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to, to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. I just want to stop there. What is going on with David? David had committed adultery, he had abused his power, he had committed murder, he had sinned after sin after sin, but God his Father had restored him into, back into a complete relationship with him, into a restored relationship with him, where he understood the purity and the cleansing that came from repentance and grace. And now David says, okay, if you're trying to convince me to bring my son back, then I, okay, then you bring him back. But once they bring him back, what does he do? He relegates him to another place in the, in the kingdom where he doesn't have to lay eyes on him. Oh, if David, the father, would have known the story in Luke 15 about the prodigal son. Oh, if he would have known what a good father does and how he looks out for a, for a repentant son to come home and when he sees the repentant son, doesn't wait on him, but runs out to him and embraces the son and hugs the son and kisses on the son and says, I forgive you of all your sins. I'm going to restore you into the family. You will know my grace from now on. Oh, if David would have exercised the kind of grace that his own heavenly father had extended to him. But he would not do that. He did not do that. And so what happened? Look down at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I don't know who was analyzing his feet, but whoever it was, apparently they were beautiful. And when he cut the hair of his head... For at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Oh, we're talking pounds of hair here. And there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was beautiful. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Listen, Listen, church, Jerusalem is not that big of a city. It is not that wide. It is not that long. This is a small city by geography standards. And yet, they don't come into one another's presence. They don't see one another at all. And so ultimately, 
Um, Absalom compels Joab and he says, let me go into the presence of the king. Let me go into the presence of my father. And if there's guilt in me, let him, be, let him put me to death. Church, this is the thing. This is the thing. Yes, Absalom is guilty for plotting revenge. Yes, Absalom, Absalom is guilty for, for murdering his brother. Mainly because his, his own father wouldn't exercise true justice. But he's guilty, and he understands that. But this is what he also understands. To come back into his hometown and to live among his townspeople without the blessing of the king and without the love of his father is no way to live. I'd rather be dead than live with the shunning of my own father who is the king. And so he says, if I have to die, I'll die. So Joab went to the king and told him all of this, and the king summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the problem of separation. In this chapter we see the problem of, of division, of separation, of isolation from one, one another. And, and it is a big problem. Because no matter how wonderful it looks right down here at the very end of this chapter in verse 33, no matter how many times the king kisses Absalom at this point, and no matter what kind of emotion that Absalom felt from his father when he's kissing him, the damage has been done, church. And not only has the damage been done in Absalom's heart and in his mind, David is still not embracing his son. He is, he is on the outside, but not in the heart. And we're about to see that play out. But we must see that Absalom, he looks the part. He projects the part. He's beautiful in appearance. He's powerful as people see him. And he's setting up himself to be the next king. And that leads us to the fifth problem, the problem of conspiracy. The problem of conspiracy. And so, notice verse 1 in chapter 15 that Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Like, what, why is he getting chariots? Like, why, why is he getting chariots and horses and why is he getting these men? I think we could be asking that question for a while. I think what the narrator wants us to know is Absalom is concerned with projecting this perception about himself that he is strong, that he is big, that he is mighty. Because this is the fact. This is just facts, and I've told you all this before, church. People just flock to strength. People just flocked to the perception that this person is a leader, that this person knows what they're doing, that this person is powerful, that this person has money, that this person is beautiful. Those are the kinds of people that we prop up in this world and that we flock to. Absalom knew it, and so he's trying to project a position of leadership already. So look down at verse 4. Absalom is now trying to turn the hearts of the people of Israel away from King David and toward himself. And so Absalom would say to the people, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. King David doesn't give you justice. I would give you justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to Absalom, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so what church did Absalom do? 
He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He stole their hearts by making grand promises, by exercising physical affection, and by looking the part of a leader. And so look down at verse 9. He asked the king, uh, Absalom asked the king if he can go back and do a worship service back in Geshur where he had spent three years because he had pledged to the Lord. And the, and the king says, yeah, you can go. Go do that worship service. Go, go make that offering. That sounds like the right thing to do. Just get out of here. And so he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron! And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. Now they went in their innocence. They didn't know what was going on. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, David's trusted counselor, David's friend, the one who was wise. He sent for him. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Get up! Let's flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And church, this is another time when we put our observation glasses on and we say, what do we see here? We see fear. We see, we see panic. We see the king right here not knowing what exactly he should do. And then we ask the question, what do we not see out of King David right here, church? He doesn't pray. He doesn't take up courage. He doesn't look to, he doesn't look to a prophet. He doesn't look to the ephod. He doesn't, look, he doesn't hit his knees and seek the will of the Lord. But he says, we've got to leave. What, what kind of king says, I'm going to leave my post. What kind of king says, I've got to get out of here for fear that something is going to happen? It's a king who is not trusting in the power of the Lord. And so then, a lot of events happen from this point forward, but Ittai, who is, who is faithful to the king, is a good friend. He's from, the, uh, he's from Philistia. And he, he pledges his allegiance to him. He says, that the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And so in the midst of all of these problems, David is experiencing real life, and he's got people who are staying with him by his side. If you look down at verse 24, Abiathar comes up. Zadok comes up. Their sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, come up. And they're all excited, and look what they say. Like there in verse 24, they're bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So David has left Jerusalem. He's crossed the brook Kidron. All the people are passing on with him who he has with him in his group. And they're like, oh, we wanted to bring the ark with us because we want to be able to worship him. We want God on our side. And so we brought it. So let's worship him and let's use the ark to win victory. And so the king says to Zadok, verse 25, carry the ark of God back, in, back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He'll bring me back and let me see both it and His dwelling place. But if He says, 
I have no pleasure in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems to be good to him. And I'll just stop right there, church, because this is why I love the biblical story and I love the honesty of God, the Holy Spirit to us, because in the midst of of David's life, he's not all good or all bad. He's not always making the exact right decisions or always making the terrible decisions. He's saying what's right here. I'm not going to use the ark the way that Eli's sons use the ark. I'm not going to try to manipulate God by using this ark in battle. The ark belongs in Jerusalem. Take the ark back. And if God wants me to get back to Jerusalem, then I'll get back to Jerusalem and we'll worship appropriately. You see, David's just like us. He's not all bad. He's not all good. He's a mixture of all of that. Because we're broken people in a broken world. Now if you look your look at the text again, he says to, to Zadok, the king also said to Zadok, verse 27, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the forge of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, your friend, your counselor, your trusted companion is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. There's David praying. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city, if you return to Jerusalem, and if you say to Absalom, Absalom, I'm going to be your servant, O king. David is saying to Hushai that he needs to go to the city that Absalom is taking over, he needs to look at Absalom and he needs to call Absalom what? King. Call him king. As I have been your father's servant in the past, now I'll be your servant. And then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. That's what David is saying. See, I'm going to use you not only as a spy, but I'm going to use you to help out the kingdom. And so Hushai, verse 37, David's friend came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So the problem of conspiracy is that David's own son is trying to take David's own kingdom and he is seeking to be king instead. The sixth problem that we see in the story is the problem of disloyalty. Now, as a met, without question, Absalom is being disloyal to his father. But now you see the disloyalty of the people in Israel who are supposed to be loyal to the king, who are supposed to exercise fidelity to the king, who are supposed to serve the king at all times. And so in chapter 16, David passed a little beyond the summit and Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. And he says, here I have all of this food. I've got raisins and bread and fruit and wine. And David says, why have you brought all these things? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. 
And the king said, Where is your master's son? I got a question. Who, who is the master's son? Mephibosheth. So Ziba said to the king, Behold, Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Before we go a little further here, church, surely you're asking the same question that I asked. How is it possible that Mephibosheth could betray David at the first opportunity? What all had David done for this lame man? He had basically treated him better than he treated his own sons. He had extended grace and mercy and compassion and love consistently for this man every single day. But you know what, church? Before we get self-righteous, we need to understand that Mephibosheth probably did not see himself as disloyal. He probably did not see himself as betraying David. He saw himself with an opportunity. And you know what? You and I, we very rarely ever see ourselves as disloyal. We very rarely ever see ourselves as betrayers. We also see ourselves with an opportunity. And many times we're willing to step over people. We're willing to kick people out of the way. And yes, we're even willing to betray people if we can think we can get one step higher on the ladder. Let us be warned. Because we, none, of, none of us, none of us see ourselves as a betrayer. None of us do. But the reality is, we have that kind of brokenness uh, available to us and also inside of us if we're not careful. Now look down, we see another disloyal citizen in the kingdom. His name is Shimei. And he's also part of that regime of Saul, just like Mephibosheth is. And he begins cursing at David as David is traveling through. He's cursing, he's saying, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! Get out! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You're a man of blood. You never deserved the kingdom in the first place. It was Saul's and you took it from him. Which is totally untrue. But you see that even when things seem like they're really good in the kingdom and everybody seems to be happy and the king is in his glory and he is exercising justice among the people, there is still within the heart of humanity a discontentment and a desire to pounce on those who are suffering and failing in order to prop yourself up or in order to elevate yourself. And that's exactly what Shimmy takes the opportunity to do. Shimmy says, the king is down. I'm going to kick him. I'm going to kick him. How often do we do that ourselves? Shimmy curses David. It's the problem of disloyalty inside David's kingdom. The seventh problem that we see is the problem of judgment. The problem of judgment. 
I read for you the very words of the Lord God to David after he had sinned with Bathsheba, after he had murdered Uriah. If you can remember those awful words, he says, I am going to do this. This is your judgment. This is your discipline. There is going to be someone else who takes your kingdom, going to take your wives, going to take your women, and this is what's going to happen. And so if you look down, Hushai... David's friend came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Like, your friend is my, my dad. Your friend is David. Why, why are you here? Why, 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 did you not, why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, His I will be, and with Him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it, should it not be His son? As I've served your dad... So I will serve you. And so he convinces Absalom that he too is going to be a counselor and a friend. And then Absalom says to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, Ahithophel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he's left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Literally, a, a tent is pitched and the concubines go in with, with Absalom and Absalom, as a symbol of his virility, as a, symbol of his, as a symbol of his sovereignty, as a symbol of his power, does the very thing that the Lord had prophesied before in chapter 12. It's the problem of the judgment of God upon sin. The eighth problem that we see in the story is the problem of attack. The problem of attack. Ahithophel says to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men. I'll arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And if you get that man, all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And church, I want to tell you, it was probably really good advice. It would be a great way to accomplish exactly what Absalom is wanting to accomplish. But Hushai is there. And so Absalom says, well, Hushai, what do you have to say? And Hushai comes to Absalom. And he says, now, if the hell is spoken, shall we do as he says? And Hushai says, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. And he begins to state some facts about David. David is a mighty warrior. David has mighty men. 
He has proven Himself not only to be courageous, but to be powerful. Not only to be powerful, but to be skilled. David, the entirety of his life, whether he's in the valley of Elah, facing Goliath the king, Goliath the giant, or whether he's slaying 200 Philistines, the man knows how to fight. The man knows how to protect himself. The man knows how to equip himself. The man knows how to align his army. You better believe they're waiting on you. You better believe that David is ready. And if you go the way that a hit the fellow is saying, there is no way you will succeed. Now, I didn't go into great detail right there, but even the things that I just said probably were pretty convincing. And so, Hushai was convincing to Absalom. And he says, you know what? Um, you're right. We're going to take Hushai's advice. And so what does Hushai do? Hushai takes these friends of David whether it be Abiathar, whether it be Ahimaaz and Jonathan, and he sends word, he sends word to David and says, they're coming after you. You guys better get ready because Absalom is mounting a charge against you and if you're not ready, you're going to get taken over. Look down at verse 20, 21. And they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David, And they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. And David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. In other words, they're getting to safety. And Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. And so he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. It's just so odd of a commentary to put in this narrative. I think the narrator would have us meditate on it at least for a moment and say, Ahithophel felt respected and felt honored when when his counsel was taken. No matter whether he was giving counsel to David or whether he was giving counsel to Absalom, it didn't matter The deal is is that Ahithophel was out for Ahithophel. And while everybody thought, man, this guy is an awesome, wise sage, as soon as he is rejected, he does not feel any self-worth. And so he goes home and kills himself. And let me tell you, it's very similar to another betrayer whose name was Judas, who was considered to be part of the king's group, but who also betrayed the king. And his plan didn't work out so well. And because he was after himself, he also hung himself. Because we have the extreme capacity to be all about ourselves, even when it looks like we're all about other people. That is the problem of the human heart and self-glory. Ahithophel had it. Let us be warned. Verse 27, David came to Mahanim. Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah, the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim. They brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese from the herd. Why? For David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So in the midst of the attack, in the midst of all that's going on against David, the fruit of David's actions in years past was coming back to him and he's being blessed by a people you would not be ex- expect for him to be blessed by. But a, 
But Absalom is on the attack, and in the midst of the attack, God has chosen people who are protecting the king in the midst of all of this. It leads us to the ninth problem. We're going to call it the problem of victory. The problem of victory. And you say, how is victory a problem? It's because when you live in a broken world, and you have a broken heart, even victory is bittersweet. Chapter 18, David mustered the men who were with him and set over them the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. I like saying that. (laughs) And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, king. For if we flee, they'll not care about us. If half of us die, they'll not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to him, Well, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Look at the humility of David here. He says, Whatever seems best to you, I will do it. And so the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. In other words, everybody knows, take care of Absalom, don't kill him. And so the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. Notice that the men of Israel are now just, it's already assumed that they're under whose leadership? Yes, Absalom's. And so now David's men are called the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword did. Because of the undergrowth, because of the overgrowth, because of all of the stones and the danger of it all. And so Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept on trucking. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there? Right there to the ground. And so they talk and discuss. And in verse 14, Joab says, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them and they took Absalom and they threw Absalom into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. And Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar. Notice that church. He had set up himself the pillar, that is a pillar of stones, that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. You see what the narrator did there? 
He says, Absalom had built this rock monument high to his own glory. At the very same time, the servants of David had thrown Absalom into a pit and thrown rocks and stones on him, on, on top of him, down in this pit. This is what he got. This is what he was projecting for himself to the people. That's the problem of victory, though. Look down at chapter 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning. Like you're thinking that the servants of David are going crazy. They're exciting. They're raising the roof. We've won the victory. We've destroyed Absalom. But then the people here, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in the battle. Like they're, they're, they're now they're, they're, they're ashamed. Now they're, they're feeling bad. And so the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son! My son! And Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you don't go, not a man will stay with you, David. Not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now church, this again, this is the, the problem of humanity and the brokenness of humanity is that Joab doesn't confess his sin. Joab doesn't say, well, I dishonored you. I did exactly what you told me not to do. This was something that you, that you treasured. I could have seized him. I could have brought him to you. I could have done exactly what you instructed, but I didn't. I was so angry. I am such a brute that I decided to murder him and kill him and dishonor him. Joab doesn't, doesn't admit any of that stuff. He just comes to rebuke the king for not being grateful and thankful for his servants for accomplishing the victory. It's the brokenness of humanity, but it's still... Church, I believe it's still there are some wise words there. That there are servants of David who have gone out and fought for David and David is acting like they should be ashamed rather than being proud of what they've done for their, for their king. But look at David, and there's still grace in David because look at that verse 8, the very first part. The king arose and took his seat in the gate. The king arose and took his seat in the gate. And in taking his seat, the people see the king. The king projects his pleasure upon the people. The people can feel okay about serving him. And they can see the kingdom begin to be restored. Now, I want you to see the tenth problem. We see it in chapter 20. It's the problem of rebellion. The problem of rebellion. There happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. 
the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Sheba is rebelling against the king. He's trying to to mount this, this rebellion that maybe he can accomplish. But if you look down further in verse 14, 15, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in, and all the men who were with Joab. Joab's going after Sheba. All the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it in. And then all of a sudden, a wise woman comes and approaches Joab and says, wait a minute, before you do all of that, what do you need? And Joab says, we need Sheba. And she says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back in, and we are going to get Sheba. We will deliver his head to you on a platter. And she goes in, and they cut off his head and delivers it to Joab, and that rebellion of Sheba is squelched. Look down at verse 22. They cut off his head, threw it out to Joab. So Joab blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. And verses 23 through 26, very matter-of-factly, very organizationally say, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Alihud, was the recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. And so over a span of eight chapters, we see the problem of defilement and revenge and heartache and separation and conspiracy and disloyalty and judgment and attack and victory and rebellion. And all we're seeing is problem, problem, problem. Surprise loyalty, surprise blessing, surprise hospitality here and there, but it's problem after problem after problem after problem. And we're like, what is going on here? And church, one passage that we didn't look at and one passage that we didn't read just happens to be in chapter 19. And if you look down at chapter 19, in the midst of all of the problems, in the midst of all of the difficulties, I want you to see for just a snippet the beauty of grace. I want you to see the grace of the King. In chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, Shimei. The son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And Timmy was this guy who was cursing. He was telling all of these terrible things about David. And so David's men say, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? We've got the upper hand now. He cursed you. You're the Lord's anointed. He cursed you. And David said, What have I to do with you? you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day the king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, betraying Shimei, disloyal Shimei, cursing Shimei, you shall not die. 
And the king gave him his oath. And then right after that, Mephibosheth. What's going to happen with Mephibosheth? He wants to take over the reign. He wants to take over the kingdom of Saul again. And what does the king do with Mephibosheth? Look, the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to banish you. I'm not going to throw you out. I'm not going to leave you to the wolves. No, you and Ziba will divide the land. I'm not going to take away my covenant that I made with David, with Jonathan, and I'm not going to take away my love for you. And then Barzillai, the Gileadite. David says, come over with me. I'll provide for, for you with me in Jerusalem. And then there's Timham, he's a friend, a relative of Barzillai. He, he says, no, I'm not going to go, I'm old. I'm 80 years old, I'm, I'm going to stay here. But i got Chimham, why don't, why don't you let him go over with you? And the king answered in verse 38, Chimham shall go over with me. And I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I'll do for you. And all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. What happens for Shimei? Grace happens for Shimei. What happens for Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth? Grace happens for him. What happens for Barzillai? Grace happens. David is a restored king. He's coming back into power, and yet he doesn't do like what most kings would do. He's looking for the people who betrayed him. He's looking for the people who were disloyal to him, and he's going to come in and pounce on them, and he's going to kill them, and he's going to stomp them, and he's going to rule with an iron fist from now on because he's never going to let anything like this happen again. No, that's not David. David is a man who had received the grace of God in the midst of his own sin and he's going to demonstrate the grace of God in the midst of the people's sin. And so church, this is what I want to ask. If David were to come right here, if David were to come right here this morning, if he were to stand before us, what would he say? What would David have to say to Redeemer Church after observing this complex, convoluted, problematic story of David's life. That's what I believe you'd say. We are broken people with broken lives. Nobody escapes unscathed. Nobody. Not even the king. I believe David would stand here and he would say we experience heartache and betrayal and pain and grief and uncertainty and anxiety and we even experience bittersweet victories. The only hope that we have is the King. And I'm not Him. I believe David would say the only hope that we have is a better King than me. The only hope that we have is a purer, cleaner, stronger, better King. I'm not Him. King Jesus is Him. 
He gives us hope in the midst of our brokenness. He gives us confidence that we will escape this brokenness one day. I believe that David would stand right here and say, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in money and some in power. Some trust in good health and family harmony. But if you do what is smart and what is wise, you will not trust in any of those. You will trust in the name of the Lord God. His name is Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you put your trust in any other circumstance, in any other family situation, in your bank account, in anything like that, you will find yourself wanting one day. You will find yourself empty and broken and you will not know what to do. Trust in Christ, I believe David would say. Church, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord! Save me, O my God! For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In the midst of David's brokenness, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of all of the betrayals and the hostility and the attacks and the family brokenness and division and all of that, David still looks to the Lord in all of his brokenness, in all of his bad parenting, in all of his bad kingly role, and all of that, he still looks to the Lord and he says, salvation belongs to you. I need help. You're granting me help. I worship you in the midst of this terrible situation. And church, how, how much do we need to do the same thing? Listen, we know each other pretty well. We know each other pretty well. You, you, you know my life. You know I've been having health problems. I know you've got some health problems in this body. Family problems. Life problems. And I'm going to tell you what we don't need to do. We don't need to say, my life is hard. My health is bad. My relationships are terrible. The bitterness in my marriage is awful. I'm just going to give up on God. I'm going to give up on church. I'm going to give up on this because I think I might could get some, some relief and some salve out in the world that I'm not getting from God. That is the last thing we need to do. Our help comes from the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord. Our only hope is in the Lord. Because if we go out to the world to have our fears relieved and our anxieties met, you know what? Ultimately, we're going to pay an eternal price for that kind of pleasure and for that kind of comfort and for that kind of help. 
So church, I I just want to call us to embrace the grace of God's providence. I want us to not lose heart. He knows what He is doing. Look at me. Let, let me, let me. Let me just see your eyes for a second. God knows what He's doing in your life. He's got a plan. He knows what He's doing. No matter how bad you feel, no matter how hard things are, trust in the providential plan of God for your life because in the end it is good and He's not going to leave you and He's not going to forsake you in the midst of this. He's going to be faithful for you and faithful with you. Press on and trust in Him. Phil, if you'll come on up. Church, if you don't mind, bow your head and close your eyes for a moment of meditation. If you can get into a place right now where you need to consider what does God want me to do? What does He want me to do? Men, husbands, fathers, right now I want to speak to you with your eyes closed and your head bowed, thinking about your life. Men, I want to give you this exhortation. Don't detach yourself from the people that you're responsible to lead in love. You are responsible in your family to prevent sin. To protect the weak. To shepherd the hearts of your wife and your children. Don't detach yourself from your wife. Don't detach yourself from your children. Instead of ignoring sin, prevent it. But then once sin happens, and it always does, don't turn the other way and act like, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't be like David and just get upset about it, but don't do anything. No, do something. Process it the way that God has called you to process it. And then do this. Pardon it. Pardon sin in your home. Forgive the sin of your wife. Forgive the sin of your children. Shepherd their hearts. Love them. Care for them. Don't get further away from them when they're not who you want them to be. Get closer to them. Love them. Care for them. Listen to them. You can avoid a lot of pain. You can avoid a lot of heartache. You can avoid a lot of rebellion if you get nearer to your people, nearer to your wife, nearer to your children. Church, I just want to say to you, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, put your hope in the King who never sinned and always loved. He never detached Himself from those He led, but always embraced them and cared for them. Put your hope in Him. Behold Him today as we sing. Bow down to Him physically and spiritually, as we sing to Him, bow down to Him and bask in His grace. Church, right now I want you to think. Think about going to the beach. Just on a, on a, a normal day, it's not too hot. And you put your feet in the sand and the ocean, the ocean, the water just comes and it just goes right over your feet. And your feet go a little bit further down into the sand as the water peels back. But then a little more water comes over and that 
nice, cool feeling of water washes up to your ankles. The sun is warm, but it's not too hot. There are blue clouds in the sky. There are dolphins swimming out in the ocean and everything is just right. I want you right now to bask in the warmth of God's grace. Bask in that. Bask in the warmth of His love, the coolness of Him refreshing you with forgiveness of sin and love. Bask in King Jesus right now. And believe in Him. Trust Him in the midst of your problems because vacation is often over. The worship service is going to end in 25 minutes. But you can go out believing in Him in the midst of your problems. Believing in Him in the midst of bittersweet relationships. Believing in Him in the midst of division and hostility. Believing in Him in the midst of physical pain. Believing in Him in the midst of a hard job. Believe in Him. And come back next Sunday and bask in the warmth of His embrace for you. And we'll do it all over again until He returns and makes everything just right.